All right, guys, in the words of UFC Bruce Buffer, it's time to get started. We are digging in this week to Joshua. My Bible ribbon just fell in the ranch dressing. Lovely. Mm. So, we're getting into the book of Judges. Last week we did our introduction to this book. Now we're going to plow into the first chapter. Here's the thing about Judges. There's nothing accidental. Um, the way that the book is structured is very interesting. And you don't notice it the first, second, third time you read it. But the more you spend time in it and look at the big picture, the more you start to see things. And one of those things you see is the first chapter is going to start off like Joshua ended. Joshua ended on a high point. Joshua ended as like the, the credits would roll after the book of Joshua. That was the end of the movie and it was a good ending. So Judges starts off on that high point. It seems like things are amazing. By the end of the, this section, things have given you a foretaste of what's to come in the book. And it's like a roller, it's like the Fury. Then the Carowinds, the Fury roller coaster, it just boom, and it's just downward plummet. That's what this is like. Those of you that are watching at home and you don't know what Fury is, big roller coaster with a big drop, and uh, it's really scary. Well, Judges does that. It drops dramatically in the first chapter, but it starts at such heights that Joshua ended. There's also a lot of inclusios, and inclusio is, is the term for book ending. So when something begins and ends with the same thing, that's an inclusio. Well, Judges chapter 1 is going to begin in a lot of ways similar to how the book is going to end, except it's going to be reversed. What I mean by that is the things that are done in the first chapter are going to inversely foreshadow what happens in the last chapter. They're going to contrast with what happens in the last chapter, in the last section, I should say. Chapters and verses didn't happen until the Middle Ages, so the book was in sections before there were chapters and verses. But the beginning sections of, ju of Judges, um, it's almost like looking at the negative image, like, like a photographic negative of the end of the book. And that explains, when we get to the end of the book, what's going to seemingly be like this dark, random uh, two things that we read about. Well, they mirror in a dark mirror, the first two things that we read about in the book of Judges. So that's like a long-term view. Some of you may not be here by the time we get to that point because we don't go fast, but uh, this is their teaser to keep coming and, and keep studying the book because it'll pay off in the end. You'll be here. That's true. I know some of you I can't get rid of you, so you'll definitely be here. <laughs> it's been like, yeah, six years. In it's been since we were here in the Bible, and now we're here in the Bible. <laughs> No, but we're going to start this chapter by actually flipping back to Joshua because I want to read one section of Joshua that sets the tone for what we read in Judges. And it's Joshua 21. And at the end of Joshua, it's kind of his farewell speech or um, the summary of Joshua and the accounts. Remember, Joshua had incredible military success and all the Canaanite strongholds were broken and the warlords were dispossessed and the cities were taken uh, the military forces and the, and the resistance was broken, so it seemed. Joshua says, chapter 21, verse 43, So the Lord gave Israel all the land He had sworn to give her forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. 
Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. So Joshua ends with God having done His part and broken the backs of the Canaanites and the strongholds and none of the enemies of God's people as enemies, as forces, as armies remained. And so there was peace from warfare on all sides at the end of Joshua. Now, we read Judges chapter 1. And this is where things get interesting. Judges chapter 1. After the death, so it's going to jump back now. Joshua is going to give, while Joshua is going to say after his death, but then it's going to jump back to while he's still alive. And there's a lot of the chronology is not exact because they wrote by subject rather than by strict chronology in the ancient world. And so these are kind of flashback scenes that are going on in this opening chapter to set the stage. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, and they were literal tribal brothers. Judah and Simeon were blood brothers. They were both children of Leah, Jacob's wife. Um, And all of Simeon's towns, you remember last year in Joshua, we looked at all of the towns of Simeon was inside the area of Judah. Simeon got absorbed into the tribe of Judah. And within 200 years from now, Simeon won't exist as a tribe anymore. They'll have been completely absorbed into Judah. But uh, the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. And we in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. So this is now describing kind of the mopping up operations that happened. After Joshua's gone, the land's been given, the armies have been destroyed, but there's still pockets and strongholds that they have to go into. God promised them way back in Torah, I'm going to give you the land, but I'm going to give it to you little by little because it would be too much if you try to do it all at once. So there's this tension we have to hold. God has already given them the land in the divine sense. He's already destroyed the armies that would oppress and stop them militarily. But they still have to little by little push into the crevices and the ravines and the hill countries and the valleys and the different places where the vestiges of Canaanite culture still remain. Because the goal, the calling of God to the Israelites, remember in Joshua the call was very clear. You are to drive out the Canaanites. You are not to make a peace treaty with them. You are not to live among them. You are to drive them out of the land. I am judging them for their sins. It has nothing to do with how much I love you, Israel. It has nothing to do with you being better. Just like I'm going to use the Babylonians to drive you out of your land when you become Canaanites, you are my instrument of judgment. So, you are to drive them out. Push them out. They have forfeited their right to the land through their hundreds of years of evils that are chronicled and documented in the books that we've studied over together for the past five years. So that's the plan. That's what's supposed to happen. So this is accounts of these kind of pushing in, mopping up operations. Verse 4, when Judah attacked... Oh, by the way, there's an inclusio here. In the first section, it says, who will go up for us? And, and it says, Judah will go up. At the end of the book, there's going to be a civil war. And the people are going to rally around against the tribe of Benjamin. And the exact question they're going to ask, who will go up for us? And God's going to say, Judah will go up. But instead of going up against the Canaanites, they're going to go up against their own brothers, the Benjaminites. And that's sort of that inverted inclusio that we see. So just chalk that away because it'll come into play much later at the end of the book. But it's there, so make a note of it. 
So Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek, and that just means the Lord of Bezek, or big, big man of Bezek, and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Ugh. We just ate meat, and now they're talking about cutting off thumbs and big toes. What's going on there? Well, it's going to explain. Now, what were they supposed to do? Drive them out. Show them no mercy. Adonai Bezek was a Canaanite warlord. They were supposed to destroy him. Instead, they mutilate him. Well, this is a Canaanite practice. We know this from Canaanite inscriptions. When you beat an army and you wanted to humiliate the generals, the headmen, if you cut off somebody's thumb, what can they no longer do? Wield a sword against you. If you cut off their big toe, what can they no longer do? March in battle or you know, stand and fight against you. So it's a way to turn people into like basically scavengers or useless or, or it's, it's, it's humiliation as much as it is pain. And this is a Canaanite practice. Now this is never commanded by God in Torah to do. God never commanded His people. Already, we're seeing vestiges of the Canaanization of Israel. They're in the Canaanite country and they are already starting to do as the Canaanites do. It's not going to be lost on Adonai Bezek. Verse 7, Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. So in other words, he did this to 70, and that could be a whole round number. It could just mean all the kings of the region. Remember, 70 is a symbolic number. But he, Adonai Bezek is saying, King, King of Bezek is saying, I'm be, what's being done to me by the gods, and it's not clear if he's saying God or gods because it's the word Elohim and it means both. But what he's saying is basically, I'm getting what I did. So there's a sense of, even among this canonization of Israel, there's a, still a sense of him receiving judgment commensurate to what he did to others. The sins that he committed are coming back on his own head, and he actually has the foresight to realize it. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Verse 8, the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and also took it. They put to the city the sword and set it on fire. Now this raises a question because in a few verses we're going to see that Benjamin can't take Jerusalem because the Jebusites live there. So what's going on? For those of you that are history buffs, so Jerusalem at the time likely was two cities, the lower city and the upper city, the citadel and then what's the city of David. And so most of the commentators read this say one of them was the military stronghold, one was where the people lived. The one that was attacked here was probably the one where the people lived and set on fire and they claimed it. The others retreated into the citadel fortress of Jerusalem and that's where they remained until they were finally driven out by King David long after this, the Jebusites. So there's some people who come in there, oh, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Not, not really. Not necessarily. We just don't know enough about the geography to know exactly which part of Jerusalem. We know Jerusalem was a border city. It sat right on the border of Benjamin and Judah. And so we don't know whose responsibility which part of the city was. Plus, cities in the ancient days, they weren't zoned like they are today. Right? Like everything today is borders and boundaries and surveyors. And it, this is the ancient world. It just There's regions and there's areas and there's settlements and there's citadels. And it, so we just have to not press the details too hard when we're reading these accounts because what we're reading is an overall general stylized 
depiction of this time in Israel's history. So what we do know is that Jerusalem, at this time it's called Jebus, it was beaten. It was destroyed. And then Judah and them moved on. They never settled it. They never claimed it. And so the Jebusites crept back down from either from the citadel or from where they had fled and retook the city. Anybody that's done any time in, in any Middle East war zone area, you take a city, if you don't guard it, if you don't hold it down, eventually insurgents will come and retake it. That's what all the guerrilla warfare in the world is based on, from Vietnam to Iraq to Afghanistan to you know, anywhere. So that's likely what's happening in this time in Israel's history. They're winning these battles, but then not controlling or maintaining what God has given and allowing the people to creep back in. Verse 9, After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. This was recounted in Joshua chapter 15. This is the story of Caleb. And it's retold again here in Joshua in this section dealing with Judah because Caleb was from the tribe of Judah. Caleb was also, as we saw, a faithful Gentile. Caleb wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was a Kenizzite. Him, his brother, or his nephew, we don't know exactly which because the word could be both, uh, Othniel, are put forward as the model Hebrew, Israelite, covenant people, even though they're Gentiles, and Caleb's name means dog. And so that's kind of the irony in this is while Judah is compromising, you know, allowing Adonai Bezek to live, mutilating instead of putting him to death, uh, not driving people out completely, kind of, you're going to have this story of Caleb sandwiched right in here at the front to show the model follower of God, who again is a Gentile. So verse 11, from there they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I'll give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, and that could be meaning he was his nephew or he was Caleb's younger brother. The text can read both ways. Took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. We bristle at this today because we're a culture where marriages are done out of romance and courtship and love and e-harmony compatibility and all, enagrams and all that stuff. In the ancient world, marriages weren't that way. In the modern world, go to places like India, they're not that way. A marriage to a, 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 a conquering noble would be a good thing. And so this is not like, we're going to see Aksa's fine with this. This is not something like subjugation of women. This is actually, he's offering his daughter to be able to marry the best warrior among the people. That would be a huge honor for her. We don't look at it that way, and ladies, I know you don't want your husband chosen as who wins the most fights or whatever, but this is one of those things where there's just cultural distance, and we have to appreciate that and not impose our rom-com culture onto the ancient Near East, because they're very different. So this was a high honor for Aksa to be given in marriage to a noble who basically would, would take over and own property and control an area. And we're going to see go on to become the first judge in Israel's history. So, uh, Aksa, is, she is, Othniel marries because he takes the city. Verse 14, one day she came to Othniel. She urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? And she replied, NIV says, do me a special favor. That's a very weak translation. Literally in Hebrew it says, give me a blessing. She says, give me a blessing. Since you have given me Negev land, 
NIV says land in the Negev. They're not in the Negev. The Negev's the southern desert. They're not in the Negev, but Negev land, Negev means desert. So she's like, since you've given, you've given me as a dowry as to Othniel, my husband, you've given us this land, but it's Negev land. It's desert land. It's dry. So since you've given us that, give me also reservoirs or springs of water. In other words, we want to make something in this place, so we need some water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and the lower springs. So this is an example of a woman taking the initiative. She, she and her husband, she's like, we've got to get better land than this. We've got to take care of our crops and our herds and our flocks and everything. We've got to make a living here. So she takes the initiative. She gets down off the donkey. She goes to her father, and she says, hey, Dad, you've given me. I'm, we're married. We've got this land. Great. Give me a blessing. Give me something more than this. Give me some water so I can make something out of this place. And he does. It's not a rude request. It's not, a, it's not an uppity woman or anything like that. It's a very, she's taking initiative. She's very much a Proverbs 31, taking care of her household. Uh, you know, not being in the background, not being a passive pawn. She takes the action. She's the one who asks. This is very interesting because in Judges, the role of women in the beginning is going to be very high. Oxa is, is not as never rebuked for what she's doing. She's put forth as kind of a model. And the next woman that we meet is going to be Deborah. She's judging the whole country, leading the whole country. Well, Oxa getting down off her donkey is another inclusio to what's going to happen at the end because at the end of the book, there's going to be an inversion and there's going to be another story of another woman on a donkey. But instead of being a noble woman asking for a blessing, she's going to be a dead concubine who goes on and gets mutilated. It's a horrible story the book ends with. But it's even more dramatic because it's contrasted with this account that we read at the beginning here of Oxa and the status of women. You can watch the status of women slowly deteriorate through the book of Judges until you get to the last chapter and the most wretched treatment of women in the entire Bible, all testaments, is found in the last section of Judges. And so that's where the book is. Again, it's this downward spiral that we're headed showing the canonization of Israel showing Israel's fall from being obedient and the ending of Joshua to where they end up at the end of Judges. But we're getting ahead. Back to the, this whole Judah section. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephthah. And they totally destroyed the city. They, they haremed the city. Those of you who have been with us, you know what harem means. Put it to complete destruction as they were commanded to do. Therefore, it was called Hormah, which is a play on harem. It's the same consonants. And it means destruction. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, each with its territory. So Judah's doing what God is and Joshua has charged them to do. They're going in and they're wiping out and driving out and pushing out and taking these places that God has given them in judgment against the peoples that are there. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. This is where we get the first interesting throwback to Joshua. When Joshua had given charge of the people back in chapter fifteen or 17, in chapter 17, verse 18 of Joshua, he said, don't be afraid. Don't worry about these people that are mightier than you, that are stronger than you, that are more powerful than you. Even if they have iron chariots, the Lord will fight, you'll overcome. So we read now Judah 
is on a roll, but then they're stopped because their enemy had iron chariots. Now, iron chariots aren't a problem for God. He's dealt with them in Egypt. He's going to deal with them in the Deborah cycle. So what's the problem? The problem is with Judah, not with God. The, the, the command and the promise of the covenant was if you obey Me, if you keep Me first, if you don't compromise, if you live your life and you walk with Me, I will be the one that drives your enemies out. So therefore, when your enemies are not driven out, what the judges is going to reveal is it's going to be because the people refused to do what God had already done for them. Refused to take hold of what God had already done. God had laid the conditions and set the groundwork and made everything happen but the people refused to fulfill it completely. And the next chapter is going to tell us this. I'm not making this up. The next chapter is going to tell us this from God's perspective. But this is where we see this first hint of, uh uh-oh, all right, the roller coaster is now going over the edge. We were going up, 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 but now we're going over. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb who drove uh, drove from it three sons of Anak. The Benjaminites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjaminites. Uh Uh-oh. Now we're starting to see the problem. The the charge was drive them out, not live among them. What happens is Israel loses their momentum. And they decide this fighting is hard. It'd be easier to just let them be. Make a a treaty with them. Make a compromise, something. And that's exactly what happens. So verse 22, Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city. And they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we'll see that you are treated well. We will deal chesed with you. We will deal faithfulness with you. This is what they were commanded not to do, by the way, in Deuteronomy. But what happened was, remember we read about the account in Numbers where uh, Rahab hid the spies, and this is going to call back that incident to mind. The difference is Rahab was the one who initiated that in response to her fearing the Lord and wanting to become part of the people of God, which she did. Rahab became an Israelite in the line of King David. This is the flip side of that. This is the inverse of that. This is Israel seeking a Canaanite and saying, yeah, don't even worry about all that conversion stuff and turning to Yahweh, any of that. Just show us how to get in and we'll let you live. So this is very different than the Rahab situation, even though um, logistically it seems similar. And so, when they sent them into the spy out, show us how to get in the city, we'll see that you're treated well. Verse 25, so he showed them and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. Then he went to the land of the Hittites where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. So he just moved. Just, just moved Canaanite from one area to another area. When God had commanded, no, the Canaanite entity is what is to be driven completely from the land. So there's again this hint of compromise in this stylized, truncated battle narrative or, or conquest narrative. So we're closing in. Now, what about the rest of the tribes? Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Again, they met up with determined opposition. And God already said, the battle's won. I've given it to you. It's yours. But as soon as they meet determined opposition, ah, we're good. We'll just let them keep these areas. Problem is, these areas are key areas in Israel. 
These areas are key areas. Megiddo is like a crossroads. It's where the Armageddon, the whole valley of Megiddo or plain of Megiddo, it's a, it's a major crossroads in northern Israel. And they're just like, all right, well, we can't drive them out, so we're just going to end up living among them. Verse 28 kind of summarizes everything. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Well, why drive them out when we can have them do our work for us? So instead of doing what God told us to do, and trusting that He knows best, we're just going to live and let live, but we're still going to kind of keep in control. You know, we're going to maintain some control and they'll do our work for us. It's a bad idea. God already told him what would happen if you allow Canaanite entity to remain in the land. It will ensnare you and you will become that very thing. And that's what we see happening throughout the book. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalol who remained among them, but they subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those who live in Akko or Sidon or Alab or Akzib or Helwa or Aphek or Rehob. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanites inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confirmed the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. The Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Eris, Ajalon, and Shalabim. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from the Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. Now this kind of we gloss over because it's a bunch of names, a bunch of places, blah, blah, blah. But what happened here is monumental. We went from Joseph having, I mean, from Judah having mixed results, trying to be faithful, going up, taking certain spots, but then ultimately not quite achieving everything that God had wanted them to achieve in terms of military victory, to this just free fall of all the other tribes. All of them compromising, not driving out, not doing what God called, and it ends with the tribes of Dan. And the tribe of Dan, rather than, than pushing a little bit and then stopping, the tribe of Dan can't do anything. And they're confined to the hill countries. They're, they're pent up in the badland while the plains below are ruled by the Amorites. So Dan doesn't get anything. And Dan, in fact, as we saw in the last book in Joshua, and we'll see it again in the Samson cycle, Dan actually ends up leaving where God had told them to go and take because it's too hard. And so they go all the way up north and find a place where they can take that's easier. And so that's how Dan becomes this tribe in the far north that's results that, that ends up being relegated to just like a single city. And then by the time of the uh, later into the uh, Old Testament era, Dan's not even on the radar anymore. And, and there's a later census list of Israel, Dan's not mentioned. The 144,000 in Revelation, when they're actually, you know, calling out the tribes of Israel and John's vision and he sees them and they're summarizing the people of God, Dan's not on the list. He gets replaced by Levi. So the whole point, that's not having anything to do with this text, but it's to say that Dan of all the tribes is the tribe least able to do anything. And the Danites had this stigma going forward of being the least faithful and the most prone to turning away and to compromise with the Canaanites. So this is kind of the chapter one ends the history. This is what started as a high point and it should have been Joshua's charge to the people and there should have go. God's given you the land. He's knocked out the main forces. Now just go occupy it. When the people go to do that and they come up against opposition as is going to happen, they draw back or they compromise 
Or they say, well, we're going to, we will win, but we're not going to do exactly what God said. We're going to do our own way of handling it. So we'll put them under forced labor. Or we'll humiliate them like Adonai Bezek. Or we'll, you know, whatever. You're starting to see the cracks in the edifice. And the book of Joshua, or the book of Judges, is going to begin with this seemingly mixed review. And the very next chapter, God's going to show up. The angel of the Lord, who is God Himself, He's going to show up and He's going to give His verdict to the people of all of this, of what's happening. And chapter 2 is going to be the exposition of the text of chapter 1. In other words, chapter 1 is like the text, chapter 2 is like the sermon about the text. So chapter 1 are the events of Israel's mixed results, warfare in Canaan after the death of Joshua. Chapter 2 is going to kind of step back and look at everything through God's eyes, and it's going to describe the whole rest of the book moving forward, what to expect because of the events of chapter 1, because of the compromise, because of the, the, the disobedience of Israel, and the little things, seemingly, the ramifications are going to be huge. But we're out of time. So, next week we'll pick it up, chapter 2. Tell your friends, tell everybody who missed to be sure to catch the podcast or the video. Uh, otherwise, we've got some leftovers here, so enjoy. Take some with you if you want to, and we'll see you next week.